Hello and welcome to this special mini-series of Against the Law, the myth-busting podcast that aims to give new life to the ancient world. We love to share the fascinating, the funny and the flat-out fluffed-up facts about history and our aim is to separate out fact from fiction as we navigate the lies you might have been taught at school. Be warned, this episode is not for little listeners. We're talking about women's health today which, although not taboo in and of itself, some of its history might be too sensitive for little ears. If you hear this noise, that's the against the law gavel ruling out fake news from the history books. So let me introduce you to the crew. She wasn't born yesterday, that's right, it's Xenia here to chat about all things ancient Rome. And let me take you to the gum clinic, sorry, that's G-U-M for Greek Untruth Mangler, otherwise known as Dr Meg, I know. Hey listen, we're joined by Barney, who could tell us all about the Fertile Crescent, since his expertise is in the ancient Near East. And we are also joined by one of our favourite ever guests, Caroline Lawrence, the author of the Roman Mysteries novels for kids. She's wielding her apotropaic cowbell today, which you might hear if we need to ward off evil spirits. It's always good to practice safe hex. (sighs) And you know what they say, there's a sucker born every minute. So let me introduce myself. I'm Flo, and... I don't know much about the ancient world, but I'm happy to put in the labour to learn all about women's health today with you, dear listener. Now, before we proceed, I'd like to say that the topics we cover in this mini-series might be considered sensitive. If you feel that the subject matter might be upsetting to you, we'd advise catching up with us again in Against the Law Season 6. And as a disclaimer, terminology we use in this series might be based on ancient assumptions about sex and gender, which could not align with modern standards or understanding. And it ought to go without saying, but please, please do not try any of the ancient methods of treating gynaecological health, contraception, fertility boosters, pregnancy advice or childbirth methods that we talk about in these episodes. Not only will they not work, but they could cause you serious harm. And with that out of the way, let's get ready to learn about today's topic. Hello and welcome to Against the Law. We are very happy today to say that we actually have three special guests for the first episode of this season, this mini series that we've got going on. We are welcoming back Caroline Lawrence, who we know and love. Um, But we've also got two special guests who possibly won't be contributing much today uh, Mm -hmm. because they're still in gestation. Uh, We're also welcoming Senya's baby and my baby. (laughs) So that's right, you heard it. 40% of this call are currently pregnant and really super enjoying it. I'm in my third trimester. I think, Xenia, you are as well. Uh, Almost, yeah. I'm just towards the end of my second trimester. There's loads of fun things I've discovered about being pregnant uh, and Xenia has as well. And Mm -hmm. I think it's made us think quite heavily about women's health in the ancient world and comparing our experiences and seeing where <laughs> where we get to in terms of healthcare in the ancient world. So we're talking about women's health today. Um, I would love a little bit of background on women's health in general in the ancient world. Senya, I'm, I'm going to pop over to you and Caroline. So yeah, um, I have so much I could say about women's health and health indeed, but I thought before we start this series that There are three really important factors that we tend to forget about when we think about the past um, because our mindset is 2000 years later or more. And I have a little mnemonic, which is fish, fish. And there are three things. So the first one starts with F. Does anyone want to try to guess something pervading the ancient world that we tend to forget about that starts with F? 
faith. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> I'll give you a clue. It's the, actually the F-I of fish. Big capital F, little I. Ooh. Is it fish? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost too easy. Good one, but no. The, the answer is filth. Filth. Oh, and um, um, a famous archaeologist, Jody Magnus, in her book, What's the Poop on Ancient Toilets and Toilet Habits, says, although we tend to view the ancient world through a highly sanitized lens, the Roman world was a filthy, malodorous, and unhealthy place. If we could be transported back in time, most of us would probably not survive exposure to the widespread dirt and diseases to which we lack immunity. So the first one is we've just got to remember the filth. I often think that living in the ancient world will be like camping out, except from instead of moving from glade to glade with our tent, we're living in a built-up area with our filth surrounding us, crammed in with people and animals every day, which hugely increases the risk of catching diseases. So that's the F. The S of fish is a bit easier to guess. The pervasive idea that starts with S. Oh, mom. Superstition. So, yeah, let's, I call it spirits, but let's say superstition. Okay. But they believe that the world was full of gods, demigods, and spirits. And we're going to be talking about women, especially in this series. And for a woman, her, the realm was her home. She was like lord of her. That was her domain. And almost everything she did was um, fighting the invisible forces that made her life dangerous and difficult. So S is spirits everywhere. That's why I have my apotropaic bell. <laughs> and then the H, I wonder if any of you can guess for something about the ancient mindset that starts with H, which we don't really have anymore. Is it something medical? Yeah. Is it humus? Yes, it is. Well oh, done. Nice. 10 out of 10 or four out of four, should I say, because the uh, Hippocratic idea was that health is linked to the four humors. Um, there's a great quote by a scholar called David Wooten, and he says, the move from the notion of an unbalanced body where your humors aren't balanced to the concept of infection required a mental revolution. Today, we know about infection. We know about germs and viruses, but they didn't know about those. And they thought that if you were sick, it was either because of an imbalance of humors or because of spirits. And the closest they got to the idea of infection was miasma or bad air. And um, the idea of the four humors has existed really up to the pre-modern times, and there's still remnants. And just super quickly, for example, Shakespeare in um, The Taming of the Shrew, when Petruchio says of Kate, I'll curb her mad and headstrong humor, he's not kidding about talking about her ability to make jokes. He's talking about her choleric nature, which was seen as unwomanly because women were classed as wet and cold, <laughs> whereas men were often hot and dry. So just to keep in mind as we go throughout this, this series, Filth, pervasive spirits that you had to control, and the four humours. I find that really interesting. Again, I'm going to compare everything that I learn during this mini-series to my own experiences. But I feel like my humours are a bit out of balance because I'm currently, I've just started the insulin for gestational diabetes. So I don't know whether that's uh, phlegm or, my <laughs> or whether it's one of the others. Lovely. Right, Xenia, what about your view of ancient Rome? So um, in the Roman Empire, 
gynecology was definitely an accepted and respected aspect of healthcare. Um, however, what they're missing in terms of gynecology is basically scientific experiments in the way we know it today. You know, this kind of idea of um, observation, of testing against a theory, all of that kind of thing. This is very recent. So a lot of what they were doing in terms of their gynecological observations are like experience, old wives' tales, word of mouth, or what they thought was logic. So um, I think it's probably best to kind of illustrate this with an example. So one of our main gynecological sources is a guy called Seranus of Ephesus. He wrote in the um, second century AD. So he's from Ephesus in Turkey, but he studied in Alexandria in Egypt and he wrote his treatise in Greek. Now, Greek doctors were very, very highly respected across the Roman world. And what he says about the best time to conceive is that it should happen right after um, a woman has finished menstruating. And his logic for this is that the womb needs to kind of clean itself and, and get, get all the stuff out of it before it can then receive more more content <laughs> from a man. So that's his logic. Now, obviously, we now know that the most fertile time of the month is about a week after that for most people. And he might have been able to work that out had he sort of done some experiments on uh, on women around their, their menstrual cycle. But he didn't. He just kind of used this logic of, well, if you throw up, you then probably are ready to take more food. So therefore, it's the same with the womb. So that I think is always quite funny, like the ancient world, they do quite well in the Roman era in terms of basic observation, but sometimes they really miss the mark. I think there's a common trend of, I mean, I'm not sure if it was much better for men in the ancient world, but there's a common trend up until the very modern day that sees women's healthcare be a little bit less well researched or less thought out than men's <laughs> healthcare. I think it's fair to say. I learned a really interesting story about a magical drug called sildenafil the other day and this drug was discovered to help with heart problems and hypertension but it was also discovered that for women it was a really really effective pain reliever for menstrual issues so a lot of women have uh, conditions such as endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome I myself has got I've got the latter PCOS and sometimes that's associated with really painful periods 10 out of 10 pain and this drug was fantastic at treating that so they had uh, they had some options for funding it but it was also discovered that it tends to give men um a little bit of extra push power downstairs um and they were given the option of funding between these two options what do you think they went with <laughs> Oh, is it the men? It's the men. So, ah. Sildenafil is what we call Viagra today. So if you took Viagra as a woman, would it still work as a painkiller or is that not recommended? Well, well, Meg, here's another rant coming your way. So okay. possibly, but the thing is, um, most medicines, uh, as they have been uh, developed, have been tested on an average height, average weight man. So some drugs... Uh, that we still take in certain doses today are actually designed for the body of an average height, average weight male, which could be really dangerous uh, for a woman who is not the average height or average weight of the average male. So possibly, but I mean, would you risk it? 
Probably not. Yeah, they they do that on animals as well. They mostly test on male animals, which is so silly. It's like, what? You're even discriminating in animals. <laughs> <laughs> Why? It was it was a hundred times worse in the ancient times. And actually, the bit you quoted about Serenus was actually not too far off. I mean, he had a far better understanding than so many of the writers because men back then either found women unimportant or almost alien beings. Like Pliny the Elder talks about women's menstruation and he says, there's no limit to the marvelous powers attributed to females. If a naked woman with her monthly courses are upon her, walks outside, they say that hailstorms, whirlwinds, and lightning will be scared away. (laughs) And if she walks into a field of wheat when she's menstruating naked, caterpillars, worms, beetles, and other vermin will fall off the ears of corn. Worst of all, a mare, big with foal, if touched by a woman in this state, nay, if she even sees a woman in this state, (laughs) will miscarry. My goodness. I mean, it's a miracle there weren't, like, there were ever any hailstorms, really. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The trick is the women didn't walk around naked. That's the key. (laughs) Ah. I'm surprised that they weren't hired as better scarecrows or pest control for fields. If I was a farmer... I'd, I'd be really happy if I had loads of daughters and I go, right, who's on? Out in the field. <laughs> it might come back in handy with the sort of increased weather events we're getting now due to climate change. Um, we might want to we might want to bring back that tradition of going outside <laughs> naked, you know. you know, just to make sure just to make sure that we're warding off some uh, for extra measure. I'll take my potrapeg bell with me as well. Just, nice. You know, for extra measure. Double whammy. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> I need to get one of those. <laughs> Lovely. So we've we've had a generalised overview from ancient Rome. I'm going to move next to ancient Greece because I find that there's often a link sometimes between Greco-Roman views. Yes, quite similar, I think. What Caroline was just saying about Pliny just being absolutely in awe, but I reckon slightly terrified of um, menstruating people. That's very much the vibe in ancient Greece. The Hippocratic Corpus, which I talked about before, is like the sort of early medical text. They were very much like women, different species. We don't know what's going on with them. Um, They thought, I'll go into more detail on this later because it is absolutely amazing, but they kind of thought women were really like leaky and spongy. They thought women were actually sort of made of quite different materials. And they did, they knew quite a lot about menstruation. And this is partly because in classical Greece, you couldn't do dissections of bodies. That was very much not allowed. So they didn't know what was going on inside the body. But obviously menstruation starts off inside the body and then it comes out. So they could analyse uh, menstrual blood. Um, but they kind of thought that menstrual blood was like the parallel to semen. So yes, didn't they got some things right, but most of it they got completely wrong. I find that really odd that period blood would be compared to semen as a sort of the female a homologue of semen because semen is often produced after an enjoyable time uh whereas period blood is kind of not real i don't associate it with the happiest times of my life yeah the guy the guy zenia was talking about earlier seranus um he said that a woman has menstruated in the right measure if she feels healthy afterwards <laughs> which i don't recognize <laughs> good lord well we still get period shaming today there's a really fascinating organization called period pain shouldn't hurt uh, which goes around educating people about about period pain, um, and they've got little tens units which are send electric signals through your body. And I think women are often shamed a little bit for feeling pain, 
when they're on their period or having their period, even today. I mean, we're getting there. We're trying. But I don't think it's enough yet. But that's my opinion. I'm very ranty at the moment, but that's probably because I'm getting kicked in the bladder. <laughs> Meg, did you come across that theory of Hippocrates that about the wandering womb, that the womb is like an animal? Yes. So interesting. They thought yeah. that the, the womb kind of had a will of its own, yeah. um, a living creature. It's really cool. Well, it's also awful, but it is interesting that they thought that. It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, no, fully, fully horrifying. I found it really interesting, actually, Meg, you mentioned that women are considered weak and spongy. And then in ancient Rome, we're considered wet and cold. Well, they humors. go together. They go together. Mm. They, yeah. they do go together. And I'm feeling sort of like a sea slug. Mm-hmm. Um, quite enjoying that actually well the way um, to counteract fear if you've got an imbalance of the humors and you're too wet or too cold you eat hot dry foods is that is the funnest thing so have lots of really nice roast chicken and honey is a hot food if you're enjoying the podcast so far why not support us on patreon our different support tiers can get you merch shout outs and even personalized content if you want to hear more from Against the Law, find us on Twitter at Against Law, and we're on Instagram and TikTok. Search for at Against the Law Podcast. Lovely. Okay. Barney, you know that you're next, don't you? I feel the, the crosshairs settling upon me, yeah. So in, you've got a tougher job because you have the entire ancient Near East. Well, that's okay. I think there's a fairly manageable way of, of getting into it. Um, so, as we know from previous podcasts, uh, the ancient Near East is full of quite analytical texts about nature and the natural world and sort of human phenomena. Um, and that goes for gynecology as well, which is part of the wider medical tradition on which there are quite a lot of texts. Um, and generally, they're in exactly the same format as, say, a legal text or an omen text, which is that if X, then Y formula. Um, one of the series of gynecological tablets uh, is called If a Woman Has a Big Head. <laughs> <laughs> she won't be able to buy dainty hats for a start. And that's, I don't trust any woman who can't fit into a dainty hat. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how they approach it. And they're generally um, concerned with sort of solving unusual problems during pregnancy and birth and conception rather than looking at normal functions. So if Xenia was talking about sort of the lack of experimentation in Roman medicine, there's really none of that at all in the ancient Near East either. Um, it's more sort of diagnostic and therapeutic rather than theoretical. And what's interesting is that um, it's sort of lumped together with illnesses and conditions where, you know, childbirth is not an illness, but there's a clear sense from the text that women are in need of particular care for those biological processes. And I could throw in a little bit about Egypt at the end as well, um, which I know less about medicine in ancient Egypt, but uh, I do know that part of the reason why people went to study in Alexandria um, was because they had a generally good reputation in the ancient world for medicine in ancient Egypt. Um, and the oldest Egyptian medical papyrus in the world is a gynecological papyrus from around 1825 BC. It's called the Cahoon Medical Papyrus. So it's a pretty, there's a pretty long tradition of, of gynecology across the ancient Near East, uh, highly analytical and full of pretty crazy remedies and uh, potions and lotions that we can get into later. 
I wonder if there was a different priority in terms of women's health. Was there ever situations where the priority would be making more children? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is one of those things that um, seems a bit like common sense. But certainly I've noticed people mentioning that, at least in Egypt, where a lot of their sort of religious philosophy was procreative, right? There's a lot of gods Mm. of fertility and there's a lot of sort of masturbation as creating the world with semen and stuff like that. Um, But, you know, there was more attention paid to um, women's health as a sort of fundamental part of that procreative process. But then, you know, back over in the ancient Near East where... Perhaps that's not quite so pronounced. Um, you can still assume that any sort of union or marriage did exist to birth children at the end of it, which is why this is common in lots of times in history and lots of places that men could take multiple partners, which is, you know, obviously birth aligned. It's interesting how that attitude has changed because a lot of my peers, and I don't know, Caroline, if this is any different. I mean, you're, you're you know, what? 10, 15 years older than us. Um, (laughs) I I noticed that amongst my peer group, there is less pressure seen on having children. I'm I'm delighted to be having my baby, but many of my friends do not want to have children. They are child-free. They don't hate children, um, except for the loud screaming ones on a packed train, perhaps. But they just don't want children of their own. And I wonder if there has been a very recent attitude shift. Absolutely. I think there are two main reasons why our modern world children aren't as necessary. One is we now have pensions in in ancient times up till very recently, your children were what were going to support you as you got older. And the other one is medical care that we now have much, much higher life Mm. expectancy. And in, um, you know, even I, I sometimes go up to Brompton cemetery near me and, you know, you go past grave gravestones or tombs from, a hundred years ago where families lost 10 children, mm. they survived, you know, they outlived all their children and you just had to have so many children to guarantee that one or two would survive. So those are two really primal reasons why childbearing was one of the prime reasons um, for keeping people healthy, really. That was the woman's main job was to raise bear children and raise the next generation. I think the healthcare point you mentioned is something that I want to ask about as well, because we have talked a little bit about, you know, physicians' views on on women, as accurate as they may or may not have been. As part of my experience in the UK, I see a midwife quite regularly, and I also see doctors quite regularly. Quite a lot of them are women. The vast majority, in fact, so far have been women. I am wondering a little bit about healthcare professionals in the ancient world and whether they would have been women or whether they would have been men or or whether a a midwife role really existed or if it was just bracketed under general health. Oh, yes, they certainly existed. And I was just reading an article that the word medici, the female of medicus, uh, of doctor, might have been transferable. There are tombstones to women called female doctors, medica, a medica but she might've been almost indistinguishable from a midwife. And essentially those were women of skill who looked after women because they were much more familiar with the female complaints. So would you agree with that, Zenia? In some cases, they did differentiate between a midwife and a, a female doctor. So they had different words for, they had a specific word for a midwife and, and obstetrics, like yeah. obstetrics and gynecology now. Um, and there's, there is plenty of evidence for women who were 
doctors and who administered to women, sometimes men as well, but mostly women. There's uh, another, there's actually a text similar to Serranus's by a woman called Metrodora. And what's interesting is where Serranus deals with both obstetrics and gynecology, Metrodora only deals with gynecology and where Serranus tends to reduce women's health conditions to like exclusively conditions of the womb, what Metrodora does is she uh, kind of expands that out a little bit more. So she does quite a lot of really interesting observations on vaginal discharge. Um, there's also a woman called Aspasia who is referenced by Pliny the Elder. So we know that she was working in Rome at the time as a, as a well-known and well-respected female doctor. And my favorite doctor, who's Galen, who's um, a Greek-speaking doctor of the second century, he greatly respected midwives and often references them and even did, dedicated one of his many, many treatises to, to a midwife. I think that's quite heartwarming, actually. Um, can I bring in a really lovely inscription that I found from a male doctor to his wife, who was a female doctor? And... Um, it's, it's so rare to find these really, really lovely, like egalitarian little inscriptions. I just want to share it. So she unfortunately died. She's called Panthea. Her husband's called Glycon. And uh, he starts out with the, with the classic, you know, um, you were a wonderful wife. You gave me sons. You uh, managed the household capably, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, along with me, you enjoyed fame as a medical practitioner because, dear wife, you were no less qualified than I in the art. I think that's brilliant, isn't it? Beautiful. Like that wonderful respect. What an acknowledgement. What power couple. That's lovely. That is lovely. Um, healthcare professionals in the ancient Near East or ancient Greece? Well, mine's maybe the slightly disappointing one. It's generally that, you know, the data's a bit limited for female healthcare practitioners, uh, at least of the kind of main medic rank, which is that priest type figure called an ishipu who's the one who deals with with omens and stuff uh, generally they tend to be male uh, there are midwives in the ancient near east in mesopotamia and uh wet nurses very common in ancient egypt uh, which is all, all sort of part of the process but i think a lot of that sort of primary proto-medical work was being done by um, men but one thing that i thought was quite interesting is that the healing deity or the major healing deity of mesopotamia is a woman a female deity rather than a male one, which I think is the case in, in Greece and Rome, right? You've got Hygeia, don't you? Yeah, so we've got um, the main health deity, medical deity is um, Asclepius, who we talked about before in the medicine episode. Then you do also have, as Caroline says, you've got Hygeia, Hygeia, um, it's the same root as the word hygiene, and she's the sort of health goddess. Okay, so there's a, there's a mix. Yeah, exactly. And I, th I think, I mean, you know, in these sort of polytheistic cultures, there are so many different deities. And I think there's, there's a mixture of um, male and female ones who are associated with healing in Mesopotamia as well. Uh, but yeah, the premier was Gula, who is a, a female deity uh, who had a special role of caring for women um, and pregnancy and pregnant women, as well as general health. Um, and interestingly, unlike a lot of medical deities, her symbol was a dog um, rather than a snake. And there are snakes associated with medical deities, um, more minor ones in the ancient Near East. But yeah, Gula's animal is a dog, which I quite like as a sort of, you know, as a companion and aid. Mm. Oh. I find it really interesting that, that sort of goddesses of health are really prevalent and women 
are often seen across many cultures as a sort of more nurturing gender you know i'll get your bowl of soup nurse you back to health but majority of quite a lot of healthcare professionals have been male actually when i was doing my research i did wonder if there was a there's a slight cultural shift that happens in the ancient near east um the important thing about gula is that she's a sumerian deity and suma is obviously one of the more ancient parts of the ancient near east down in southern babylonia southern iraq today um, and the Sumerians were doing their business for, you know, a few thousand years before the Akkadians came along, who were a Semitic speaking people. Um, but the Sumerians are isolated from them. And there's a thought that Sumerian culture generally had a more egalitarian approach towards women. Uh, but the Akkadian view was that women were inferior. So you do see a slight shift very early on, you know, 2300 BC, around that time is the Akkadian Empire when they come in and displace everybody else. But there's a theory, at least, that there might have been more female healers before that time. Wow, that is fascinating. Very interesting. So I should probably just wrap up female practitioners in the ancient Near East with a named person, actually from Egypt. Uh, The oldest named female physician in Egyptian history was a physician called Pasachet. And she was from around the fourth dynasty, which was the dynasty of the great pyramid builders, which is around 2500 BCE, so very, very old. And she was a high-ranking physician, sort of an overseer of all the other ones, and very close to royalty. So I think it's fascinating that in this time that people are looking back on as a golden age in later Egyptian history, this particularly powerful physician was a woman. Nice. Girl boss, again. So sounds like Barney, she wasn't actually as wet and spongy after all, or, or as uh, cold and wet. Um, but can we get some clarification, please, on, on weak and spongy? I want to know why, why are women weak and spongy? Is it literally just that we're a bit softer? It is interesting that you mention it like that, Flo, in, in sort of connection to women being weak, because it is connected to that, in that basically the idea was, and this is the sort of Hippocratics, um, but also Aristotle had similar ideas that because women sort of do less than men, they don't work hard, they're not very strong, they've got all this like unused energy or strength or something inside them, which then has to be soaked up by their spongy bodies and then discharged in the form of menstruation. So they basically thought that women were just kind of sitting around absorbing all the sort of energy and stuff that they weren't using, going off fighting wars or whatever it is men do in their spare time. And then getting rid of it as menstrual blood, which is just absolutely bizarre. And they thought that men had glands, which they do. That's correct. Men have glands. But they thought the Hippocratics, at least, thought that women, their whole body was a gland. It could absorb, it could excrete. And that's where you get this image of women as spongy. Um, (laughs) So we're basically just Brita filters. Yeah, essentially. (laughs) They just So this is what I was saying earlier about the menstruation and semen being in parallel. Aristotle thought that women's breasts, I mean, again, they can see the breasts, they can see the menstrual blood. They don't know what's going on inside, but they're kind of working from what they can see outside. Aristotle thought that women's breasts were sort of part of this. And he said that the amount of blood that a woman would lose in a menstrual cycle would be more than the amount of semen a man would lose over the course of a month. And that quantity reflects uh, the difference in size between male pecs and female breasts. 
<laughs> that is bizarre. It's so weird. That is very weird. I think it, I think it very much depends on the the gentleman or, or the lady in question. The amount. Well, exactly. Oh, but this is another thing. Actually, they kind a lot of them, especially earlier on, thought that well, thought that bleeding was linked to the lunar cycle. But some of the Hippocratic Corpus people thought that basically it was so linked to the lunar cycle that all women would bleed at the same time and on the same days every month. So it'd be like, okay, menstruation week, all of Greece, off we go. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, ladies, we've got it in the calendar. We know it's coming up. Exactly. Once again, like, did they not see, did they not notice? It's just like, guys. They could have asked. Open your eyes. At any point. They thought this was, just to clarify, they thought that was the ideal um, and that the fact that women didn't all bleed at literally exactly the same time every month together was a sign that sort of something had gone a bit wrong. Well, the ir- the irony is that, of course, our cycles are linked to the moon and then mm. if you put a lot of women together in one big house, they will all um, synchronise their menstruation. Yeah, so there's some like some good stuff in there, some grains of truth, but also some very wrong bits <laughs> i think you're also likely to sink and unsink because women do have different lengths of periods and also different lengths of days between periods so when we were looking into having a baby people have to track their ovulation and there is a huge disparity in how likely that is to be on a certain day or a certain time of the month because sometimes it isn't a month um for many uterus owners who experience things like endometriosis or polycystic ovarian syndrome i know for me Sometimes I'll go months without having a menstrual cycle or sometimes it'll be 20 days or however long it is. And it might last for seven days or 17 or 0.7. I can speak for PCOS uh, about up to one in five women have PCOS. And I can't imagine that in the ancient world there was no such thing as PCOS. It's not a modern thing. So I wonder what it was like for women with PCOS in the ancient world. The month that I got pregnant, I was quite surprised that we did <laughs> because I've been trying to track my um, cycle and uh, yeah, it, it took me by surprise. It wasn't what the, what the app said I was doing. <laughs> no, and, and the same happened with me. You're supposed to track if you're trying for a baby and you're expected to have some issues. So polycystic ovarian syndrome does not mean that you are infertile necessarily it means that your chances of fertility are a lot lower and I was told as a teenager when I was diagnosed that I was point blank infertile if I wanted to try I could uh, go for IVF um, or you know try try something called ovarian drilling which to me sounds more ancient than anything that we've mentioned today (laughs) but um, I was told you you won't be able to have children naturally And uh, I apparently didn't ovulate at any point in time. And in two and a half months, a baby appeared. So, I mean, there's still a lack of knowledge about PCOS. Told I was infertile. I am not, clearly. Um, And I'm being kicked right this moment to uh, remind me. Can I I leave you with a ancient cure for gynecological problems? Maybe this is what they would have done for women who had um, PCOS or similar in the ancient world. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Yeah. So this is sort of the source I was looking at didn't have specifics, but this is general. Something's wrong with your womb. Um, irrigation, essentially, is the solution. So this the recipe. So you get uh, wine, boiled milk and wild cucumbers. Mix that all up into a nice little cocktail. Strain it. So the wild cucumbers, we leave them behind. But then that mixture you sort of insert into the vagina, up into the womb, swirl it all around. Somehow 
clean it, get it back out again. And that sort of the womb has now been irrigated. And that is really linked to this idea that they thought women were all kind of leaky and spongy. Um, That's hilarious. I think I might give that pass. It's <laughs> not going to work. How do you... I'm mostly horrified by the concept of swirling it around. I know, yeah. I suggest you leave that one right behind and go for the roast the roast chicken and honey, you know? I think that'll be much better. I think I'm going to follow Caroline's advice. <laughs> Thinking of Caroline's uh, initialism from the start, fish, the filth section of that you sort of assume is to do with general poor hygiene. But I like how in this case it was sort of self-induced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And actually, you know, that would put my humours out of balance and I would also probably put a curse on someone in order for them to have a spirit follow them around if they suggested that to me. Mm. So we're covering the whole (laughs) mnemonic there. I cannot tell you how many of Pliny's remedies include mouse dung and stuff like that. Oh, God. (laughs) I've got some very, very filthy contraceptives for the next episode. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, I've got some really gross as well. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goody. I'm glad I'm not still having morning sickness. That's not that's not nice. Right. So on that really delightful note, Meg, uh, I'm going to ask everyone to think of the favourite thing that they've learnt or heard about or talked about today. And um, our, our guest Caroline goes first because I, I don't think I can get much out of uh, my baby. So honoured to go first. I loved um, Dr. Glycon and his wife, who was no less qualified than he. That's a wonderful... Uh, inscription and it shows that people men could still be redeemable even back then (laughs) it's so very lovely and Zenia in that case I'm going to pop over to you well I I had a it's a favorite thing but it's also a least favorite thing sometimes comes up on the podcast so it's um Aristotle's very very silly ideas about women being weaker and spongier and and messier firstly because Scientific evidence now shows that in terms of tests of stamina, long distance running in particular, um, there is absolutely no difference between the capabilities of women and men. And secondly, it's just like, you know, how dare Aristotle just say that like women were deformed versions of men? I mean, when he didn't even bother to kind of investigate us at all. I mean, I look at what my, you know, I I check my pregnancy app every day and just see what amazing things are happening in terms of my body changing and my baby growing. And I think this is incredible. This is wonderful. How dare he just dismiss us by saying we're deformed? I'm going to move to Meg because, Meg, you brought up Xenia's most and least favourite thing. My favourite thing is a genuine favourite thing, um, which is Barney's story about the Sumerian female health goddess and the oldest named female physician from Egypt. Um, I really love that. Those are some really cool anecdotes. Yeah, girl bosses. Barney, over to you. So I thought for me, uh, my favourite thing was was a misconception, an ancient misconception, so not one that we can thwack the gavel down on, unfortunately, but um, just the, I think it was the Hippocratic conception, misconception, that semen and pecs and menstrual blood and breast had some sort of correlation. Like, that is just absurd. A pretty bonkers fact, so thanks, Meg. I have to say that from the whole episode, the ridiculous views of, of women's health is what strikes me as my most favourite, partly because in a slightly bitter way, I'm not convinced we moved on a huge amount um, from some some fairly outdated worldviews. Um, and I think we've got a long way to go. But that's also my least favourite thing as well. The pecs, the boobs, 
the the periods of the semen, all of what Barney has mentioned, and just being weak and spongy, wet and cold. Um, but I will be taking Caroline's advice to eat some uh, dry chicken, probably with some hot sauce, just for extra measure, and some honey. And I think I might pass on, on Meg's advice to mix wine with boiled milk and um, use it as some kind of hula hooping uh, douche. Yeah, don't forget the <laughs> wild cucumbers, Flo. Oh, sorry. It won't, yes, of course. it won't work without the wild cucumbers. So, of course. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I will forego <laughs> Sainsbury's and I'll go rummaging in my neighbour's allotment yeah. instead. Um, but I would, yeah, actually, I think I might give it a pass. Okay, so, well, that's up to you. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was today's episode. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I, I love it when you join us and I really need to get an apotropaic bell. Thank you for letting me join in. I really loved it too. 